Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to the Accessible World Special Program Series. The date is Tuesday, September 13, 2011, and we are looking now at Part 2 of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. We also have a major announcement, we hope, and I'm, I think we will, near the end of the show, so stick around. And without further ado, uh, let me give the uh, mic, the phone over to our traveler here, Ira Fistel. Ira, thank you for coming. Well, thank you very much, Bob, and I'm ready to go. Uh, okay. It's actually the second part of this, this pro series of programs on the Connecticut Yankee, but we're going to talk about the first section of the book tonight. Um, this brings us down to the question of how you read a book. And I uh, love to talk about this because it's so important and so few people really know about it. There is a very, very efficient and very reliable way to read a book. And that is to break that book down into its parts. What defines the parts? How many parts are there? How do the parts relate to each other? And when you can do that, you get the, you get the knack of doing it. You read what's there. You don't leave anything out. You don't read out of context. You have a whole, and you see how that whole is put together. Now, we did this with Huckleberry Finn. If you'll recall, when we were doing the Huck Finn series, I talked about the structure of the novel Huckleberry Finn and how it's in three parts. The first part is uh, in and around St. Petersburg uh, and involves Huck withdrawing from and being withdrawn from society. The second part of Huckleberry Finn is the 20 chapters of the raft journey on the Mississippi River, uh, together with Jim and later with the King and the Duke. The third section of Huckleberry Finn is set at the Phelps Plantation down in Arkansas, or Louisiana, I guess it's Louisiana. And the three parts relate to each other. Huck, in the first part, withdraws from society. In the second part, he observes the horrors of society. And in the third part, he determines to destroy, as far as Jim is concerned, the wicked institution of slavery, which is the worst thing in society. So he goes from part of a society that accepts slavery to an outside position, an outsider's position, observing the society, and then in the last part, determines to steal Jim from, from slavery. In other words, attacking the fundamental institution of that society. That's the way the book works. So let's take the Connecticut Yankee. How does the Connecticut Yankee work? All right, uh, I'm going to give you a short breakdown of the way this book is put together. It is similar to Huckleberry Finn. Similar, but nowhere near the same. It is in three parts, and the three-part structure is very old. It goes back to the Greeks, and you can describe it basically in three words. Exposition first section, where the, the uh, plot problem is laid out and we meet most of the or all of the main characters. The second part is called the development, when the themes that are raised in the first part are worked on and explored. And the third part of the three-part structure is called the uh, denouement or uh, resolution in English. And the resolution, of course, is the end of the story. How does the story end? Okay, those three parts are parallel to the three acts of a play. And the classic structure of uh, most plays is three acts, exposition, development, and resolution. So that's the basic structure we're working with in the Connecticut Yankee. How do we define the three parts? How do we know where one ends and the next begins? The first ten chapters of the Connecticut Yankee, plus the uh, note that Twain puts at the beginning and the preface, make up part one. And how do we know that? Because these ten, ten chapters and the preface and the note that go before it take place 
in and around and at the court of King Arthur at Camelot. In other words, they're defined geographically and by the location at the court. The second part of the book, chapters 11 through 38, involves the Yankee going out into the kingdom and having adventures, similar to the Raft series in Huckleberry Finn. The second part of the Connecticut Yankee is, like in Huckleberry Finn, divided into two subparts. In the first subpart, the Yankee is in the company of Sandy, Alessandra the Carta was. And in the second part of the second section, he is in company of King Arthur himself in incognito, a disguise. And that section ends with the rescue of the king and the boss, uh, Hank Morgan, the Yankee, uh, by 500 knights on bicycles. <laughs> one, of Quain, one of Twain's greatest uh, comic visions. Anyway, that ends the end of chapter 38. And the first words of chapter 39 are, Home again in Camelot. And so we return to Camelot for the third and final section of the book, chapters 39 through 44. Today we're going to talk about that first section, the preface, the, the post, what do you call it, the uh, note by Mark Twain, ex, note of explanation it's called, and then the ten chapters, leading up to the end of chapter ten. Okay, so this might be called section one of the Connecticut Yankee. It all starts with the preface. And the preface is similar to the beginning note in Huckleberry Finn, the, the little warning note, uh, where in Huckleberry Finn, and remember it says, anybody trying to find a, a moral in this book, uh, a plot in this book, motive in this book will be shot, banished, etc. Well, Connecticut Yankee has its own preface. And it's called the preface, actually. It's a short note, and what it says is that uh, the customs discussed in this book and the institutions discussed in this book uh, do not necessarily uh, exist in Arthur's time, but seeing as they existed in other societies at other times later, it's not too much to expect that they existed in Arthur's time as well. Now, what the heck is this here for? Anybody got an idea? What, what, remember what the, uh, the note in, in Huckleberry Finn did? It alerted you to the fact that this book has a plot, a moral, and a motive. Okay, what does this preface in, in uh, King Arthur's Court, Connecticut Yankee, say? It tells you that the unjust and un, unhappy uh, customs that, we write, that he writes about in King Arthur's Court existed at other times and other places, and therefore probably existed at Arthur's time, too. What's the point of this? What he's doing is warning you, giving you a notice, that this book is not strictly about 5th century, 6th century England. It's about those other societies at other times and other places, including the America of Mark Twain's time. The book was written between 1886, January 1886, and May of 1889, it was published in, I think, December of 1889. It took about three years to write. Huckleberry Finn, by contrast, took ten years on and off. And the last year was spent entirely rewriting, polishing, and improving. With the Connecticut Yankee, there was no such period of time spent at the end to rewrite and whatever. And there was a reason why not. Mark Twain, about the time he began writing the Connecticut Yankee in uh, January of 1886, began buying shares in the Page typesetting machine. James Page was an inventor who uh, was trying to create a machine that would set type for a newspaper the way a human being would have to do it, only do it faster and more accurately. And Twain, who had been, as you know, a printer's devil and a journeyman printer, 
was fascinated by this machine, and he was mesmerized by James Page. Page could practically twiddle Clemens around his finger. And Clemens began with a $2,000 investment and a $5,000 investment, and eventually he had a $50,000 investment, and by the time the whole project blew up in his face, a total failure, it had cost him three hundred thousand dollars in eighteen ninety money mm -hmm. three hundred thousand dollars he sunk into that machine and it was not all his money a lot of it was his wife's which she had inherited from her father the page machine and the book were twins in clemens mind and he somehow came to the conclusion that he would finish the book when the machine was done, and the two of them would be done at the same time. His motive for investing in the page machine and for putting all that money into it was the most common motive there is in human, uh, human life, the motive of greed. And I've talked about this before, and I will talk about it again. It is absolutely impossible to understand anything Samuel, Samuel Clemens did or wrote without recognizing the fact that he grew up in abject poverty and he never wanted to be poor again. He wanted money. He wanted lots of money. He wanted it now. And he didn't want to work that hard for it if he could help it. The most important single thing to remember about Clemens the man, as apart from Twain the writer, was that he was always interested in big money. Money now, money easy, money, money, money. And he saw, in what uh, he thought he saw in the page machine, the uh, thing that was going to make him a millionaire. He figured there were 100,000 machines that would, uh, you know, the page would make 100,000 machines and sell each one of them for large amounts of money, I don't know how many thousand dollars, and 100,000 machines, even if you sold it at uh, um, $10,000, which would be probably way under the price, that's millions of dollars. And that's what he was looking at. He wanted that money. And he was willing to take big chances with the, the page machine. It never really did get finished, although he did finish the book at about the time Page made a demonstration of the machine. But after that, Page took it apart again and went back to work on it. So the machine was never really finished. The book was, although not the way Huckleberry Finn was finished. Huckleberry Finn was a literary project that Twain worked at long after he had actually finished the manuscript. I mentioned before, he spent a whole year just polishing it. He didn't do that with the Connecticut Yankee. When he wrote the last words of it, he sent it to the publishers, and that was that. He was going to get rich on the page machine. He would never have to write again, never have to work again, never have to write another book. And unfortunately for him, it didn't turn out that way. It was also unfortunate for the quality of the novel, because the Connecticut Yankee may be a masterpiece, and it is in many ways a masterpiece, but it's also a very flawed book. And one of the reasons why people have so much trouble with this book, how, how they have trouble reading it, trouble understanding it, trouble even wanting to finish it. And when they do finish it, they have trouble with their feelings when they finish it. It is a disquieting book. It is a brutal book. It is a bad, a nightmare book. I think that's really the way to put it. It is a nightmare. It's different from Huckleberry Finn in many ways, but it's also a twin of Huckleberry Finn, a mirror image twin. You know, where you have the, the uh, Siamese twins, and one on the right is the mirror image of the one on the left? That's what uh, Twain does with Huckleberry Finn and the Connecticut Yankee, except that the mirror is cracked, because he didn't put the work into the Yankee that he put into Huckleberry Finn, and he didn't put the time in, and he didn't you know, stop to um, make the book better. He, when he finished it, he just wanted to get rid of it and get on to being a millionaire. So that's why The Connecticut Yankee is not the book that Huckleberry Finn is. But The Connecticut Yankee is a masterpiece.
and we're going to try to explain how and why it's a masterpiece. It started out, uh, the, the idea of the book started out when Flame was on a lecture tour with George Washington Cable, and they were in Rochester, New York one night, and uh, Cable brought par uh, Twain to a bookstore, and in the bookstore there was a copy of King Arthur uh, and the Knights of the Round Table, as told by Thomas Mallory. The title of the book is in French, Mort d'Arthur. Thomas Mallory was the uh, uh, author of the book, although not the originator of the legends, which go back much further. And he lived in, I think, the 15th century. Uh, Mallory's book is the source for all the legends about King Arthur that we hear today. Um, what was it? Uh, the Idols of the King. Um, well, there's so many. There are, you know, all kinds of modern books about uh, King Arthur's court. They all go back to Thomas Mallory, and so does the Connecticut Yankee. Twain read the uh, Mallory book and fell in love with it, just absolutely adored it. Well, that, that, uh, after he met that book, or found that book in that uh, December of 1884, he wrote some notes, and they're comic notes. They go like this, quote, Dream of being a knight errant in armor in the Middle Ages. I have the notions and habits of thought of the present day mixed with the necessities of that. No pockets in the armor, no way to manage certain requirements of nature, can't scratch, cold in the head, can't blow your nose, can't get at a handkerchief, can't use an iron sleeve, the iron gets hot in the sun, leaks in the rain, gets white from frost, freezes me solid in the winter, suffer from lice and fleas, make a disagreeable clatter when I walk into a church, can't dress or undress myself, always getting stuck by, struck by lightning, fall down, can't get up. <laughs> All this is in Mark Twain's notebook, quoted by Justin Kaplan in his autobiography, not auto, but his biography of uh, Mark Twain, called Mr. Clemens and Mark Twain. And those were the ideas that he started with, comic ideas about what it was like to be a knight in armor. Now, actually, and this may surprise some people, the idea of a knight in metal armor at King Arthur's court is an anachronism. Anachronism is something out of its time, out of its own time. If there was a re really a King Arthur, he would have lived in the 6th century, that is, the years 500 and so, as in the book. But iron armor wasn't invented till the 11th century, 500 years later. <clears throat> also, if Arthur actually existed, he was probably more like a tribal chieftain than like the noble king, of, the chivalrous king of, uh, of the legends. But Mark Twain never let historical complications like that interfere with his stories, even if he was aware of them. And it's unlikely that any readers care anyway. When you talk about Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, you immediately think of the man in armor, the knight in shining armor. And Twain uh, was no different. He just adopted the, the uh, armor and just didn't go worry about uh, the fact that it was a historical anachronism. Well, not that the original jokes about armor play more than a very small part in the novel as we have it today. As was quite common with Mark Twain, the original conception of the book became much deeper, darker, and much more complex as the novel emerged. And according to Justin Kaplan, the biographer, the grimmer dimensions of the book were present as early as January 1886 when Twain put the first paragraphs of the Connecticut Yankee, which we'll talk about tonight, down on paper. Okay. While Clemens was writing this book, and he was pouring money into the page machine, what he was doing was completely, unused, completely in, in controversy with what he was writing. He was pouring money into the pages in the machine, and doing it thoughtlessly and, uh, and self-deceiving himself into how rich he was going to get. And Mark Twain, meanwhile, was writing in the Connecticut Yankee a book which takes to task 
through satire, the American society that Samuel Clemens was trying to become uh, a peer of. In other words, much of what's in the Connecticut Yankee was Mark Twain criticizing what he was doing as Samuel Clemens at the same time. The two personalities had by this time diverged so much that Clemens, who apparently couldn't stop being what he was, found a way out of the guilt that he was feeling by criticizing everything he was doing as Mark Twain in, in, in the book. Now this brings me to the very first question I'm going to ask, and uh, Bob and ladies, uh, if you have a if you will, will participate in this. The question is, who's telling this story? Who is telling the story of the Connecticut Yankee? Anybody there? Well, it's not Hank, since it's in third person. Well, it's, it's actually in the first person. It is in the first person. Okay, so it is Hank. I've read, read it like about eight months I've, ago. Yeah, I thought. It, what do you mean? I thought it was the um, the Yankee. He he got knocked okay. out, and he starts the telling Yankee and relating the narrates, story. Narrates narrates the first few pages and has written the rest of it. And we'll talk about how he wrote it in just a moment. Mm. Okay. okay, but is it the Yankee story? Who wrote the preface and the postscript? It wasn't Kaplan, was it? No, nope. it was Mark Twain. Oh, okay. Mark Twain writes while. the very beginning. It starts with, uh, it was in Warwick Castle that I met the stranger. And he writes the last lines. Uh, he was getting up to one of his great effects, but he never finished it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Mark Twain is not telling the story. He's repeating or uh, reproducing the narrative of Hank Morgan, the Yankee. Oh, okay. But then who was Hank Twain? Who was Hank Morgan and who was Mark Twain? Is Mark they're Twain all they're all the same? They're all same. Mark Twain uh, I, Yeah, go ahead, Sherry, I'm sorry. Oh, this is Bonnie. I just said maybe they're Bonnie, the same. Bonnie, go ahead. I'm sorry. Ma maybe they're, they're the, same? the same. I thought they're one all the same person. Good. Samuel Clemens is and is not Mark Twain. And Mark Twain is and is not the Connecticut Yankee. Oh, wow. And this is a unique device that he used here. He never used it before, and he never used it again. It's what I call the framing device. The story is framed twice. First, there's the Yankee's tale, framed by, Clemens, by Twain, rather, and then there's Twain's book, which is actually by Clemens. So why did he do this? Why did he go to the difficulty of putting this frame around a story which was written by his own alter ego. And I suggest there could be only one reason that makes sense. And that I is... Would, yeah, go ahead. I would say just to fuse the two lives together, uh, maybe to make it even more interesting for him, since really what he wanted to do was get it written. Well, uh, I, I think I'm, I'm not getting what you're saying there. Um, why did he bother to put the frame in? Why did he just have the Yankee tell the story, narrate the story himself? Because he wanted to be in it. Well, but Mark Twain isn't in the story. Mark Twain is only there in the first few lines and the end, in the last few. The no, only thing that makes sense he, here. He wanted to poke fun at the various societies, so didn't he have to do that as Samuel Clemens? Uh-huh. Yes, you know, he, he warns us at the beginning that he's going to do some of this. Yes, he did. But the only thing that makes sense here is he didn't want anybody to think about who it was who was actually being the critic. He says the, the Yankee is the critic. He can say Twain was the critic. But nobody knows what Clemens is thinking yeah. because of the three levels, see, the three layers. How can you say what came from Clemens as compared to what came from Twain and what came from the Yankee. And by doing this, he sets up uh, a barrier against people reading this book and thinking, 
Aha, so that's what Clemens is up to. Uh. Now, I think that's the only reason that I can see for this complicated, awkward framing device. It has to be so that nobody would know what Clemens was really thinking, only they would know what uh, Twain or what um, Yankee Morgan was thinking. And that puts you on alert, too, uh, that there's some things in this book that he didn't want people to think about, didn't want brought back to him. And, in fact, there are lots of things in this book that he didn't want brought back to him. Uh, after the book was finished, he wrote a letter to William Dean Howells, and he said, well, I finished the book, it's off to the printer. Uh, I'm, sometimes I wish I had more, said more, I hadn't said so many things, that I left out so many things that I wanted to say. But it would take a pen warmed up in hell, and it would take a, a book as long as an encyclopedia to do it. Let it go. I'm done with writing. Well... <laughs> All these things should be red flags to the bull. This book is dangerous. Anybody here know uh, Fox and Socks by Dr. Seuss? Anybody know that delightful book of puns, Fox and Socks? It's tongue twisters. Tongue twisters. And the beginning of the book, the first page says, this book is dangerous. And at the end, after you've gone through all the tongue twisters, it says, now is your tongue numb? Well, Twain didn't say, now is your tongue numb, but he sure gave you every reason to believe that he's telling you this book is dangerous. Okay, uh, let's start with the preface. We defined satire in the last uh, talk, so I'm not going to go into that again, except to say briefly, satire is the device of making an attack on some person, institution, idea, government, country, whatever, by setting up a straw man and attacking the straw man, not telling the audience the direct object, the, end, the real object of attack, setting up an indirect object of attack and letting the audience recognize the deadly parallel between the, the uh, artificial target and the real target. In other words, making the audience, making the reader participate in the attack. That's why satire is so powerful when it comes off, because it makes you part of the attack. And this book, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, is the greatest satire ever written by any American at any time, any place, ever. All right. The problem with satire is, what if the audience doesn't get it? What if the audience doesn't see that it's a, an attack on a straw man? And that has particularly been a problem with this book. And I can quote a very distinguished professor, Henry Seidel Canby, who said uh, that this is not uh, a good book. This is a dirtying of chivalry, terrible, awful thing. Professor Canby should have known better. Most of us should have known better. This book gives you every clue that it's a satire, including the illustrations of the book, the title of the book, which I think I talked about last time, um, there's no question that it's a satire, that the real object of attack is not King, uh, the uh, England of King Arthur, but the America of President Arthur, Chester Arthur. Okay, how do we start? Well, I mentioned the preface with the warning. Then there is the note that Mark Twain says, a note of explanation. And it says, it was in Warwick Castle that I met the stranger. And the stranger is hanging around at the rear of a group of people being taken through the castle with Mark Twain. And he gets to talking, and Twain says, I like this company because he did all the talking. I didn't have to do anything. Um, the stranger is, has a very weird look about him. And when they come to a piece of iron armor worn by Sir Sagramore Desirius, uh, it has a, a hole, a bullet hole in it, and the guide says, uh, Sir Sagamore's armor here, bullet hole can't be explained. Maybe it was done by Cromwell's soldiers maliciously. And the stranger smiles a wan smile and says into Twain's ear, Mary, I saw it done. And then he goes on and says, 
I, I did it myself. And he asked Twain, hey, you know about uh, transmigration of souls? What do you know about transmigration of bodies and from one time to another? And then he disappears. And that's all we hear of the stranger at the beginning. Now, Twain goes home, and he's sitting in, uh, in the Warwick Arms, the inn near the castle, and it's night, and the rain is coming down, and the wind is blowing, and it's nasty outside, and he's warm and comfortable. He's got Mallory's book on his lap, and he's got a bottle of scotch with him. And he keeps drinking scotch and reading stories from Mallory. At midnight, or after midnight, there's a knock on the door, he says. He opens the door, and there's the stranger. And the stranger comes in, and Twain gives him four whiskeys, trying to get him to talk, and pretty soon he starts talking. And this is where the actual action of the book starts. What are, the, what are his first lines? Anybody notice? I am an American. Those are the first lines he says. I am an American. I was born outside of Hartford, Connecticut, and I am a Yankee of the Yankees. And then he says, I have no sentiment, no poetry in me. I'm totally practical. His uncle was a horse doctor and his father was a blacksmith, and he was both at first. But then he says he went over to the big arms factory, the Colt Arms Factory in East Hartford, and went to work there learning how to make things. And he says, I could make anything, anything a body wanted. And I could figure out a better way to make it if it was already made. And if it couldn't be made, I could make it. I could do anything. I became chief superintendent, had 2,000 men under me. And then uh, with those 2,000 men, there were bound to be arguments and there were bound to be problems because they were big, strong, roughnecks. And one of them was a guy called Hercules, and one day, Hercules hits the, the Yankee over the head with a crowbar. And when he wakes up, he's in, in this uh, countryside, sitting under a tree, and here's a knight in shining armor looking at him. All right, that's how we get into the, the story. At this point, the stranger says, here, read the rest of it yourself. I'm going to bed. And he goes out of the room and leaves Mark Twain a manuscript. It's written on yellow parchment, very old. And Twain looks at it and sees that beneath the Yankees' writing, there is dim Latin writing done by some monk. In other words, two, two layers of writing, one on top of another, done at different times by different people. We call this a palimpsest, P-A-L-I-M-P-S-E-S-T. A palimpsest is a manuscript written over another manuscript. Anybody notice this in the book, that it's a, pal a pal palimpsest? Why did Mark Twain or Samuel Clemens make the Yankee story a palimpsest? And again, I can only suggest one reason to suggest that it is not to, believed anymore, to be believed anymore than the legends of the knights on uh, shining armor who fight with dragons and uh, rescue young ladies from castles and uh, uh, exaggerate their stories and all the rest of it. Otherwise, it makes no sense. There has to be a reason why he made it that way. And I think the reason is to suggest that the story that the Yankee tells should not be taken at face value. Now this brings us to another question. I asked before, who's telling the story? Put it another way, who is responsible for doing this story in the first place? Did the Yankee actually meet a stranger in Warwick Castle? Not this thing, Yankee, did Mark Twain really meet a stranger in Warwick Castle? Yes, the chances are he did, because uh, if it's rational. But the guy was a lunatic, just hanging around. And did he come back at midnight? Well, Twain was sitting there with whiskey on a cold, nasty night, drowsing over Mallory's book. And the last thing he reads is a story about Sir Lancelot and Sir Kay 
and Cherkay is uh, being given credit for taking three prisoners by Lancelot and told to take them to Camelot uh, to see the queen. And then uh, comes the knock on the door. And here's the stranger. Did the stranger really appear? Or was this whole thing a dream that Mark Twain dreamed sitting in the Warwick Arms that night? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know if the stranger ever wrote a palimpsest. We don't know if it was real. It may have been Twain's dream. So the story of the idea of dreams is huge in this book. Now let's go one step further. If the Yankee was not the actual narrator and if the whole thing was a dream of Mark Twain's, then is it also a dream of Samuel Clemens? What was, what was Clemens doing with this dream? Why did he do this dream? And these are all questions that you have to think about with this book. And uh, some of them are answerable. Some of them may be answerable. You may not have the right answer. We don't know. How do we know? We don't know. But all right. So this is the, the question of whose dream is it? Was it the Yankees' dream? And he does go back and forth between the 19th century and the 6th. Uh, and at the end, he uh, just takes, my, he says, anyway, Twain says, the uh, Yankee thinks he's Sandy, thinks Twain is Sandy, his wife, in the 6th century. And he says, I have these terrible dreams. Don't let me go back to those terrible dreams. Stay with me, Sandy. And he holds Twain's hand and he dies. Did that happen? Or was that part of Twain's dream? We don't know. We don't know. All right. The story begins with Sir Kay and the Yankee. And this is chapter one. Uh, and it takes place at King Arthur's court in Camelot. And the first title, the chapter of the first title is Camelot. The, the story, the chapter is short. It's a description of the town dirty, pigs running around, naked children running around, teeming with life, and behind the town is this great castle, and while uh, Sir Kay is leading his prisoner through the town, uh, there's a procession of knights with banners, and they follow the procession to the castle. Chapter 1. At this point, Hank Morgan, uh, whose name, by the way, we don't know yet. We don't find out that his name is Hank Morgan in the whole first section. We don't even learn that later. But uh, Morgan is being taken by Sir Kay, and we do know who Sir Kay is. Sir Kay was the knight that he, Clemens was reading about, or Twain was reading about the night before. I should say Twain. In Chapter 2, they meet, oh, he, um, oh, I should say, before we even get to that, before we even get to that, the, the Yankee wants to know where he is. And when he sees the town that they're headed for and the castle behind it, he says, Bridgeport? And the Sir Kay replies, Camelot. I should have said this before. What's the reason for him saying Bridgeport and then Camelot? And getting the reply, Camelot. Well, I think the obvious implication is that all of our, our Camelots uh, are Bridgeports. In other words, this story is not necessarily about a 6th century England. It's just as much about, if not entirely about, 19th century America. Our Camelots are Bridgeports, and our Bridgeports are Camelots. Just another one of those little things in this book that, that tell you, that hint, that it is a satire. All right, chapter two, King Arthur's Court. The first person uh, Hank meets turns away from him, doesn't reply to him, and so does the second. But the third is a boy dressed up in pink tights and very self-satisfied. His name is, we don't find this out yet, but we find it out later, Amyas the Poulet, which means the chicken. <laughs> and of course, the Yankee doesn't know this. He calls him Clarence, if that may be your name. And he says, 
how old are you? And he says he was born in the year 513. 513? How is that possible, says the Yankee? How can I be in 513? And how do I know it's 513? He asks the date. And Clarence says it's the 19th of June, 528. So by that we know that at this point Clarence is 15. Now the Yankee tries to figure out how, figure out how he can know whether this is really the, the 6th century or he's in a lunatic asylum in the 19th century. And then he remembers, and this is one of the most difficult things to take in the book, he thinks of, uh, that he knows that the only eclipse in the first half of the 6th century, eclipse of the sun, in the first half of the 6th century in England, took place on the 21st of June, 528, <coughs> pardon me, at 12.03 p.m. Now, how does he happen to know this? Is this a, a fact that anybody would carry around in their heads? Unless he was insane himself. It was sort of a, um, what do you call it, uh, um, idiot savant? <laughs> anyway, he asked Clarence about Sir Kay, and uh, Sir Kay is, Sir Cl is Clarence's boss as well as his captor. And Sir Kay takes him to the yeah, round table to well, be with other prisoners there who are being shown off. And chapter three is Knights of the Round Table, Knights of the Table Round. Sitting at the round table are Sir Lancelot and Sir Galahad and Sir Kay and all the others. And sitting in the ladies' gallery is Queen Guinevere. And around the table is also Merlin the Magician. Now, the scene uh, involves eating beef off of the bones and dog fighting and you know, dogs fighting and entertaining the, uh, the crowd. And then uh, when the prisoners are introduced and uh, Sir Kay says, these are the three prisoners I brought, the queen looks disappointed, Queen Guinevere. But when she hears that Lancelot was the one who really taught the three and insisted that Sir Kay take credit for it, then she smiles a pretty smile and flirts with her eyes at Lancelot. Trouble in the making. Now, according to the Mallory stories, everybody in the court knew that Lancelot and Guinevere were having an affair, except King Arthur, who was so noble and so naive that he didn't know his wife was messing around with his top knight. But uh, it, it's quite clear, right from the beginning of the Connecticut Yankee, that Guinevere has eyes for nobody but Lancelot. Now, what about this magician Merlin? Merlin is very famous. Uh, he's one of the characters from Mallory that we know best. But what is his magic? What can he do? And we get an answer to what Merlin can do in this book. In this third chapter, and then again in the 44th chapter. What does Merlin do? He starts talking, and Clarence says, oh, no, not again. He's going to tell that same story he tells over and over again. He only has one story, and he never stops telling it, and we're all so tired of it. And he puts his head on the Yankee's shoulder and goes to sleep. And the whole court goes to sleep. Everybody goes to sleep but the rats and the flies, listening to Merlin talk. Merlin's story is how Arthur finds the sword in the lake. You know, and the, the Lady of the Lake is holding up the sword, and Arthur uh, goes out and gets the sword. That's Excalibur, the sword that he uses. Well, but Merlin's story is so boring, and his voice is so boring, that he puts people to sleep. That's Merlin's magic. His one thing is he can put people to sleep. And what does he do in chapter 44? When we come to it, chapter 44, Merlin puts the Yankee to sleep for 13 centuries. This is interesting because uh, in Tom Sawyer and in Huckleberry Finn, and again in this book, Twain seems to be saying that uh, superstition is terribly worthless and uh, shouldn't be paid attention to. And yet in all those books, in all three of these books, superstition somehow turns out to be true at the end. 
Merlin puts the Yankee to sleep. Uh, what's his name, Jim? Jim becomes a rich man again. He owns himself, and he's worth $800. He had a hairy chest, and that was supposed to be, be rich. And he becomes rich at the end because he owns himself. Uh, and the same thing in Tom Sawyer, uh, the buried treasure. So anyway, there are parallels between all these books. Uh, one of the things that I love to talk about is that all of Mark Twain's major works are thematically linked from Tom Sawyer right down to The Mysterious Stranger. And I don't think anybody's ever, uh, you know, ever really uh, elaborated on that topic, but I'm doing it in the, what I'm telling you tonight. Chapter 4, Sir Dinadan the Humorist. Uh, his humor is, is uh, very low quality. He ties a couple of mugs to a dog's tail, and the dog, of course, is frightened and uh, goes running around the room while everybody's laughing. And then he tells a story about, um, uh, Sir Kay tells a story about how he captured Morgan, and, and he was supposed to die at, he's going to have Morgan die at noon on the 21st. And everybody's afraid of Morgan because his clothes are so ridiculous and so different. And uh, Merlin says, well, you know, just get rid of his clothes. Or then his, his enchantment will be gone. So he's taken to the dungeon without his clothes. Chapter 5, An Inspiration. Clarence comes to visit the prisoner. At this point, Morgan is saying, is it all a dream? Here we go again. What's a dream and what's real? And that's one of the themes that I keep talking about in all of Twain's work, going back all the way to Tom Sawyer. Is it real or is it a dream? And the very last uh, works of Twain that were published uh, under the title The Mysterious Stranger after his death by Albert Bigelow Payne, who put together three different manuscripts, deal with the dream state, and he concludes that everything is a dream. There is no reality. That's The Mysterious Stranger. There is no reality. Nothing is real. Everything is a dream, and you can't tell. You know, no one can tell what's real and what's a dream. And uh, he then comes to believe that there is no such thing as reality. A very strange philosophy, but we'll talk more about that later. Anyway, Clarence's reply is, Ah, and so it's a dream that you're going to be burned at the stake tomorrow? Uh, the first thing the Yankee thinks is, oh, I don't want to be burned at the stake. I'll try to escape. But Clarence says, you can't escape. There are 20 guards around. And besides, Merlin has put a spell on yourself. And this gets him mad. And he says, well, damn, Merlin. I'm a magician myself. And this is the thing that starts uh, the Yankee on his career. He gets Clarence to promise to take a message to the king. Remembering the eclipse, he says, I will cause a great, uh, a great disaster if I'm harmed in any way. And he tells the king, he has Clarence tell the king, you better not mess around with this guy. He's a tremendous magician, a huge magician. Well, Clarence comes back, and the Yankee thinks about it, and uh, Clarence reports to him that Merlin is poo-pooing it, saying, well, he didn't tell you what the calamity is because he can't tell you he can't make a calamity. So the Yankee decides to use the eclipse to get himself out of trouble and to become the boss of the country. And he sends Clarence back to the king to announce to the king and the court that if he's not let go, he will blot out the sun and it will never shine again. Chapter 6 brings us to the eclipse. The Yankee... Uh, thinks that the eclipse, realizes that the eclipse will make him not only safe, but he also goes further and thinks of how it will make him powerful and that it will make him rich, that he will dominate the country. He will become the, the number one man in this society, the richest, the wisest, the most powerful. Then comes the news that the execution will be today, not tomorrow. Clarence has, uh, says he had it moved up because I knew that, uh, you know, you could do it today. Uh, you know, your powers don't depend on waiting till tomorrow. 
And so the Yankee is taken to the stake, and he's about to be burnt when the eclipse begins. Clarence had the date wrong. It was not the 20th. The 19th, it was the 20th. And so now it's the 21st. And the Yankee now knows, at least he thinks he knows, that this is the, uh, the 6th century and that he is now going to run the kingdom of England. Well, of course, uh, the sun comes back a few minutes later, or an hour later, whatever it is, and he is set free and uh, given the noble raiment to wear and a palace to, to live in, and he becomes the king's first minister. Chapter 7, well, his miracle gets around that he, uh, that he did this, and the people want more. They want another miracle. And so he decides he's going to give them another miracle. He's going to blow up Merlin's tower and get revenge on Merlin at the same time. This, uh, this miracle, however, as he explains to Clarence, requires a little preparation. And so he gets Clarence and some other people to make gunpowder. Of course, he knows how to make gunpowder. He knows how to make everything. And make iron, an iron uh, lightning rod and... Uh, and make wires. I wonder how he made wires. But anyway, uh, he embeds the wires and the gunpowder and the gunpowder in the walls of Marlin's Tower. And on a good rainy night, uh, he <laughs> calls Merlin up and says, All right, Merlin, uh, see what you can do to stop my magic with your magic. And Merlin makes a few passes in the air and uh, you know, and, uh, says a few charms and whatever. Meanwhile, the lightning rod is loading. And uh, the Yankee says, all right, that's enough. And he points a couple passes in the air, and bang, the tower goes up in the sky in pieces, and his career is made. The people are all running away. They don't want to see any more of these miracles. They, uh, they know this man is uh, something far too powerful to the, for them to mess around with. And so he becomes, in Chapter 8, the boss. Now, he doesn't have a title. And he doesn't get a title right away. But along the way, a blacksmith calls him the boss. And that becomes his title. And he's perfectly happy with this because he says there are only a few thes. There's, there are many dukes and there are many nobles, but there's only one king. There's the king, there's the queen, and there's the boss. And he's really happy with that. But in the course of this chapter, he makes some musings about his opportunity being in the 6th century with the knowledge from the 19th. And he realizes, and he says to himself, what a jump I had made. What a jump I had made. Who made an unbelievable jump from Western frontier uh, drunken correspondent to Eastern uh, married, uh, family, uh, sophisticated high-class citizen. It was Samuel Clemens who made that jump. And he made it in a matter of nine years. Between 1861, when he went to Nevada, and 1870, when he married Livy, he went from nobody to somebody very, very big. What a jump I made. That could be Clemens talking. It's Hank Morgan talking in the book, but it could be Clemens talking, couldn't it? And one wonders exactly how much of the, more of the Yankee is Sam Clemens. And Sam Clemens was a Connecticut Yankee by adoption, remember. He came to Connecticut in 1870, and he lived there for most of the rest of his life in the United States. He was in Connecticut for all but about uh, the time he was in Europe and about four years in New York. He had homes in Hartford and later in Reading, Connecticut. Um, he became a Connecticut Yankee. He wasn't born one, but became one. And he looks at all the people around him, and he sees that most of them are slaves. Those who were freemen were freemen, but they were slaves anyway, economically. And he thinks of them all as rabbits and as white Indians. They don't, he says they don't have any thoughts. They don't have any sense. And he recognizes that he has inherited ideas, but they're different than the ones that the people have inherited. Now, the interesting thing about that is, he, does, he recognizes this in this chapter, that he, too, has inherited ideas about societies and about what's right and proper and what's wrong. But he never seems to realize it in the rest of the book. He doesn't act on it. He doesn't seem to see it. 
and it's one of the strangest things about this book, is that the Yankee is a victim of his own inherited ideas, even though he ought to recognize that he has them, because he says it in this chapter. Well, chapter 9, there's a tournament being held, and uh, Sir Gareth knocks Sir Sagramore off his horse, and just at that moment, the Yankee who's been asleep wakes up and says, I hope he's killed, and Sir Sag thinks it was about him, and he challenges the Yankee to a duel, or a, 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 you know, a, a, a tilt, uh, to be done in a few years when he comes back from hunting the Holy Grail. And, of course, uh, the Yankee doesn't take this too seriously. He's not worried about it. But there's, there's the challenge, and this now becomes uh, a very important clue to what's going to happen later in Chapter 39, in the last part of the book. Finally, Chapter 10, which is called Beginnings of Civilization. At this point, Clarence is 22, so we know that seven years have passed since the boss took over the kingdom. And while he has been using the seven years, putting together the elements of the 19th century society, getting bright young men, recruiting them, putting them to work, um, making things and uh, spreading uh, the 19th century under the eyes of people in secret. He has a parallel civilization built with telephones and telegraphs and a military academy and a naval academy and what he calls man factories. Uh, and now the king begins to push the Yankee to go out uh, into the realm and get a reputation so he would be worthy of having a fight with Sir Sagramore because he's not a knight and uh, he, is, he would not be a worthy opponent unless he had something more. So he got the title of the boss and now he's supposed to get adventures. And this is what he goes out in the, the, the wilderness with Sandy. So those are the first ten chapters. Some of the most successful parts of the book, uh, I think everybody remembers the eclipse scene, Bing Crosby, you know, in the, in the movie. But uh, it's really only the beginning. And the rest of the book is not as much fun, by all means, except in certain places. But anyway, there's a lot of, of, of really awful stuff in this book. Not in the first, cha the first section, though. Okay, we have a few minutes left, right? Yeah, uh, yes, and I want you to make your announcement before the end. Well, I'm about to Please. do it. I'm going okay. to do it right now. Uh, I have been working on this stuff, uh, Clemens' life and, uh, and his works and how to read them and what's in them, and far more, for a long, long time. And I can now announce that in November, my book, Ira Fistel's Mark Twain, Three Encounters, will appear in public print. It's going to be published. Hooray. <laughs> I can't believe it. I'm so excited about it. It's going to be published. It'll be available on Amazon. It'll be on Kindle. It'll be on uh, Nook. Uh, and I hope that, uh, it'll be everywhere. And people can read for themselves some of the stuff that I've been talking about. More, of course, much more than I've been talking about. Uh, the book and now will, the, the three encounters. The Three Encounters. Three Encounters. Is this going to be Huck and Tom? I'll tell you Huck what the Three Encounters the Yankee? are. The yeah, first encounter, they? wait a minute, listen. The first encounter is what I'm doing with you guys, encounters with his works. How to read what's in Mark Twain's works, uh, how they're related to each other, what they mean, why they're so important to us today. Encounters with his works. The second is encounters with his life. I tracked him around the country from Hannibal to California and Nevada, back east to Hartford and to Elmira, where his family's, his wife's family was and where he's buried. And I tried to get a feel for how his environment affected what he wrote. And he was a very different writer, depending on where he was at different times of his life. The third section is the one that's most controversial. It's called Encounters with His Mind. And through his work, I try to get into his mind and find out what made the man tick. Why was he so difficult to understand? Why was he such a matter of man of paradox? Uh, almost beyond, uh, beyond uh, comprehension. He was, he was almost like two people in the same body. And I try to figure out why did that happen, and I come up with some answers. So it's interesting that your book part. is in three parts when you've been talking it's about three parts. Being it's in three exposition, parts. development, and uh, resolution, if you like. Numa, yeah. 
<laughs> but uh, it's all one book. I had a great deal of trouble getting it published because all the publishers said, well, it's not one book, it's three books. And I kept saying, yes, it's three books, but it's really one book. <laughs> and I finally have got it. It's going to come out. Signed the contract, and it's going to come out. And I'm so excited Wonderful. about it. Oh, also, you should be. Also, I have been recording a lot of the stuff that I've been doing with you people. Uh, I have recorded on um, CDs. I have 11 CDs about Mark, about Mark Twain and his work, including one in which I read uh, part of the um, Life on the Mississippi. And all those things are in preparation for some future release. So there's uh, going to be a lot of stuff out. That's great. Congratulations. Well, Congratulations. Well, Thank let's you. Our, our, I almost can't see. believe it. Until, until I see the book, I won't believe it, you know. Yeah. Sure. But I know it's going to happen. Let's see if our ladies on the phones have questions first. Okay. Any comments or questions? If you don't, that's okay. But if you do, let's hear I have hear. one question. I was wondering if you know if the people in Mark Twain's time when this book was published thought that the King Arthur thing was, was real or if they realized it was a legend. Well, a lot of them didn't, but a lot of them still don't, of course. Uh, people in those times had the advantage of knowing that the President of the United States was named Arthur. <laughs> Chester A. Arthur. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know how many of them made the connection. Yeah. For the wow. most part, people have been puzzled by the book ever since it came out. And uh, William Dean Howell seems to have figured out at least that it was a satire. Although he doesn't seem to have gotten all of it, he seems to have gotten part of it. But Howells was Twain's closest friend and uh, literary advisor, so uh, he ought to have figured it out. But uh, the general public, I don't think, has figured it out yet. And certainly the they didn't touch... has been in print for see, how many years? 200, 140 years since it came out. And certainly the dreams probably were not thought of too much in 1888 or whatever. Did they pick up on the dreams concept? <sighs> Who knows? Yeah, but people today don't pick up on it. They don't. They no, don't see the reasoning. They don't see the uh, the, the uh, reasons for the uh, framing device. They don't even pay attention to the framing device. Wow. Let's see if Bonnie has a question. Sure. I guess the only one I really have is, what did okay. his family think of his writing? Uh, I don't think they understood it for the most part. His daughter Susie always thought that uh, The Prince and the Pauper was his best book. It came out when she was about eight years old, and she just loved it. But yeah. the really tragic thing is his wife thought The Prince and the Pauper was his best book. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't think his wife even had any idea of what he was writing. Yeah. Okay, uh, lastly. The, people who, the, the one person in the family who may really have appreciated it was his sister-in-law, who was very smart and very much closer to... Uh, Twain intellectually than his wife was. Mm. All right, lastly, so let's she, may have, she may have gotten it. I don't know. Uh -huh. but if anybody in the family did, it would have been her. She got it. Okay. Let's see one more final question. Don Queen is out there in the studio, and I know might have a question. So, Ron, if we can connect up with him. Yeah. So let's see what Don, if Don's out there here. He was. I don't no. hear anything. He doesn't have his... Well, well, wait. I don't know what... Doing there. There we go. Don, can you hear me now? I, 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 uh, I always thought the book was a, a satire, but I thought it was just a critique on uh, push uh, or, or something pushing modern uh, modernism over the uh, feudalism. Uh, I guess I, it certainly was a lot deeper than that. Wait, Ira, let, let him. Okay, yeah. Ron, are we back on? I want Ira to respond yeah, to you're that. You're on now. Right, I think we are. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Uh, well, even today, and partly oh. because of the movie that you know that was made from it, uh, people don't get it as a, as a devastating attack on American society in the 1890s or 1880s. They just don't see it, and it's so obvious once you read the book carefully, you can't miss it. Um, especially when he gave you a hint with the illustrations. The original illustrations were done by Dan Beard who was the founder of the Boy Scouts of America, by the way, but also was a socialist and uh, bitter critic of the, uh, well, shall we say, the Gilded Age capitalism. And right. Beard was an artist, and Twain hired him to do the pictures. So 
it wasn't that Beard did the pictures without Queen's knowledge. And Beard used the faces of real people in his pictures. So the slave driver is Jay Gould, the worst of the, the robber barons. Mm. Yeah. And uh, Queen Victoria is in it. The Kaiser of, of uh, Germany is in it. Uh, there's no way you could possibly miss the fact that uh, he's using real people in the 19th century as uh, figures in the book. But people, of course, don't see the illustrations today. Sherry, go ahead. Sherry, do that again. Saying please, the Sherry. founder of the Boy Scouts was a socialist? Talk about irony. Yes. Yes. Wow. And Beard. Yeah. Uh, the, the Boy Scouts began in England uh, with Robert Baden Powell, but the American group was founded partly by Dan Beard. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, Ira, we thank you so much. Again, we congratulate you. This is so exciting. And I'm certainly buying a book and reading it. going to read it. And I'm oh, sure others oh. are as well. And well, we thank you so much. people say you're going to have at least one copy sold. <laughs> 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 My sure. fantasy, of course... Is that uh, there are 150 million people out of 100 a billion 500 million in China who want to study Mark Twain, and at uh, royalty of a dollar a book, uh, well, that'd be not easy street. That'd be pretty good, absolutely. I make more money than Mark Twain did. <laughs> well, thank you, I very I much. Really, I don't really expect that to happen. Uh, anyway, well, next time. Thank you so we'll, much. We'll, a great next job time we'll and do enjoy. the second part. Okay. Right? Uh, yeah, try we to will. do those 11, 11 through 38. Yeah, those little 27 chapters. And we're uh, going to have okay. to go through it quickly because it's a lot of stuff. Yeah. So, uh, by well, the way, some of it I think should have been left out of the book. And I suspect that if he had gone back over the book and tried to make it uh, more balanced, he would have taken out some of that stuff. But we'll talk about that next time. Ira, thank you, and enjoy your travels. Oh, thank you, and we'll talk and uh, set up a time for the next, uh, the next talk. Very Thank good. You. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank ladies. You, Ira. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.